According to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, a remake is a new version of an older motion picture or TV show. That's a quote. And so when you get a remake of something, you know, it's usually a TV show or movie where they have new film techniques or new storylines or new um, modern ideas they want to play on these older movies and TV shows. So what are some movies or some TV shows that you've seen that you know are remakes of something that are that is older? Walker. Walker? Wonka. Willy Wonka. Oh, Willy Wonka. Like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, yeah. That's right. I forgot about that one. <laughs> That's more of a reboot than a remake. Uh, a reboot, you know, is when they continue the storyline after they've stopped it. There's some others you can think of. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that TV show's a remake, not a, not a reboot. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, I know who I know who he is. <laughs> <laughs> they remake, yeah, the TV show MacGyver. I've tried to watch a few of those episodes. Nothing like the originals. I've got, I took down a few movies that are kind of famous remakes that I didn't even know were remakes, to be honest. At least two of them I didn't. One of them is the movie I Am Legend. Do any of y'all remember that movie that came out a little while ago? It came out in 2007 with Will Smith. It's actually a remake of a novel and two previous movies. So it was the fourth version of that. The previous movies weren't called I Am Legend. They were called The Last Man on Earth in 1964 and The Omega Man in 1971. So I had no idea that was a remake of previous movies and even a book. The movie Scarface is a remake. It's actually a remake of a 1932 movie that featured, um, you know, mobsters from the 1920s. And so when they remade it in 1983, they, they changed it. But it's the same basic storyline as the 1932 movie. Uh, the other one, this one I knew was a remake. It's called The Magnificent Seven. Have any of y'all seen the, of course, this actually has three versions. You have the, the famous one, which is the 1960s Western. Any of y'all seen that? 1960s Western. And then there's the modern remake of that. So then they made the modern remake of The Magnificent Seven with some you know modern actors and stuff. But those two mo movies are actually a remake of an older movie that's a samurai Chinese movie. So I see Sammy's nod. Did you know that, Sammy? Yeah, it's actually a remake. It was an uh, Eastern movie about samurai that the guy in uh, the 1960s, he saw it. And he said, no, this would make a really cool Western instead of about samurai. And so it's actually a remake of that, three different versions of the same movie. And so today we're going to look at, and for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be going through more of the Old Testament books and kind of looking at how they still apply to us and what they mean and how to read them. And today we're looking at first and second Chronicles. And so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up the first and second Chronicles. The thing about first and second Chronicles is that it's basically a remake of first and second Samuel and first and second Kings. It tells the exact same period of time in history as first and second Samuel and first and second Kings. It tells about uh, King David and Solomon and all the kings up until they were exiled. 
The one of the biggest difference, though, is you realize that it's only two books long instead of four books long. And so when we look at the fact that there is essentially a remake in the Bible with First Second Chronicles, that raises some questions in our heads. Questions like, why does there need to be another two books about that period in Israel's history when we already got four books about that period in Israel's history? You know, why is it so much shorter? Why did they leave so much out, in other words? What was the purpose in, in shortening at that? And when you do read it, you'll notice that it's way more happy and way more positive than First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. First and Second Kings is pretty pessimistic in its view of Israel. First and Second Chronicles is a very optimistic view of Israel. Why? Why is that? Why does the author of this one paint a little bit different picture of what that time was like? You know, these are questions that kind of come up. Even people like Bathsheba and Elijah and Elisha don't appear in these books. And Elijah, Elisha, Bathsheba, we would think, man, those are people you'd have to talk about if you were talking about that time in history for Israel. And so these are all things that come up when you read First Second Chronicles and we just go, why? Why did they feel the need to remake uh, another two books in that time period and it, and to specifically edit it in the way that we wouldn't expect them to edit it. And so what I hope to do today is for us to look at these, I call it the five messy bits of First and Second Chronicles. And I hope that after we leave that you'll see, one, why these books are included in the Old Testament and also what we today can kind of glean from them and what they add to it that the other books, the other four, do not. Um, but before we get started, uh, I want to we'll ask one more question. That is, who is still cold in here? Because I <laughs> you might want me to turn the heat up. Teresa doesn't get a vote. <laughs> All right, I'll turn the heat up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if I'm up here walking around and I'm cold, I know y'all sitting in the pews and gotta be cold. Like, of course, I'm not wearing a jacket like some of y'all are still. All right, so first let's start off. This is not a messy bit, but just for general knowledge, who wrote First Second Chronicles? There's two theories. The traditional view through uh, Jewish history has been it was Ezra. You might recognize that name because there's a book in the Bible called Ezra. And that's kind of been the Jewish traditional view of who wrote First Second Chronicles. That view is not very popular today, even among conservatives. Today, we kind of view it as we don't know. Maybe it was more than one person. They obviously used resources because they, they'll mention them in First Second Chronicles. They'll say, hey, if you want to learn more, go read this book. Um so the kind of current view is we don't really know who wrote it. We do know, though, uh, when. We feel like we know when. The first messy bit when it comes to this book is when was it written? And then the second one is why is that important? So when was First and Second Chronicles written? First and Second Chronicles was written after the Jews got back from their exile from Babylon and Assyria. So brief little reminder of what happened in Israel's history. So you had the period of kings, which is what the books is about. 
And Israel didn't follow God. And so when they didn't follow God, God sent them into exile into Babylon and Assyria. And every single Israelite was forced to leave the nation of Israel and go live in Babylon and Assyria for 70 years about. After 70 years, King Cyrus said, hey, yo, Israelites, y'all can go back to Israel now. And some of them did. And after they got to Israel, that's when they started to rebuild Jerusalem. They started rebuilding the temple. And this in this period, when they are kind of coming back to Israel again, when they realize that they've done wrong, they understand, they know why they went into exile, because they were disobeying God. They don't need to be retold that again. But they are struggling with times like the temple building, opposition to the temple being built, opposition to Jerusalem being built. It's this time that they begin to write a remake of their history in First Second Chronicles. So that brings up the question of why. You know, what is different about this book that specifically addresses the issues of Israel in that period when they were coming back from Babylon and Assyria? And to think about that, you kind of have to put that in their shoes. I mean, imagine if you were forcibly taken from your house and your house was burned to the ground and not just taken like to Mississippi, which would be terrible, but to or Tennessee, which would be worse, but taken to another country forcibly for 70 years. Of course, you know, anybody who was older would have died. Only the little kids would have remembered what Israel was like. And. You're getting back in Israel and you think it's going to be great. You're you you've been told by everybody who's older than you for the last 70 years how awesome Israel is. And so you get back there and you think it's going to be peace on earth. And it's not. Um, you're still being ruled by the Persian kings. The people who moved in don't like the fact that you're moving back. It'd be like if you moved out. You came back and somebody was living in your house and they didn't want to leave your house. Um, you had people that were not happy about Jerusalem being rebuilt or the temple of God. It was a, um, it's like throwing a cold bucket of water. They're excited. And a lot of them got very depressed, got very anxious, and really almost got to where they wanted to quit and just kind of hold up in their little houses and just live out lives in the little bitty houses that they have. And so there's a need during this time to give people some hope. To give people hope that they're, that God has a plan for what's going on. And even though the times are bad, that God has a hope for the future. He has a hope for his people. In that regard, that's very similar to what we experience today. You know, when we look out of our world and see the chaos and the trouble and, you know, the political strife that's going on, where we see a lot of apathy regarding Christianity, even among Christians themselves, and the blatant opposition to anybody that wants to follow Christ. It's uh, it's easy to look around and for people, for us today, to have that feeling of depression, that hopelessness, that maybe we should just kind of quit. And so First Second Chronicles isn't written to beat them up. They got First Second Samuel, they got First Second Kings. Those books beat them up. It told them how bad they were. What they needed was not to be beat up. What they needed to do was to give them hope that, hey, God's got a future for you. And it interestingly did that through showing all the ways that God moved in their past to say, hey, if God can do that in the past, he can do that for y'all's future. 
And it focuses then not on the northern kingdom because all those people were bad. It focuses on the kings of Judah because the hope is in the Davidic king. It focused on the temple because that's being rebuilt. And it focused on the Levites and the priests because they were coming back and you needed them to do the sacrifices. And that's what the focus then of the hope is centered around the Davidic king, the temple of God, and the priests and the Levites. Because that's where God was going to move in the people. At least the Israelites thought so. And so when you keep that in mind, I'll ask you guys a question then. The first nine chapters of First Chronicles is genealogy lists. Mm, the good stuff, right? That, um, so, you know, kind of a tough book, First Chronicles. You're like, I'm going to start off reading the Bible. I'm going to start at First Chronicles. You know, the first nine chapters are a little bit tough sledding. My question to you guys is, now that you kind of know when it was written, the environment, what they needed, why, why do you guys think of all things, they would begin their book with a genealogy list of nine chapters long genealogy lists. Yeah, that certainly is an issue. A lot of the genealogy focuses on the priests and the Levites, and that was important. Like who who's related to who? You got to know who's a Levite, who's a priest before they can walk into the tent. So yeah, that was important for them. Absolutely. I mean, when you read names like Abraham, you know, that's going to spark memories in people's minds of what God did during that time. And it connects those days that are even farther back with their lives. Absolutely. Anything else y'all can think of? In the beginning of it says it's a historical record from Adam to Abraham. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Very detailed, too. They obviously, it's amazing what they kept up with. That's a lot of years, you know. So that's some things that, and that's one way, for example, first nine chapters of First Chronicles is like one of the hardest sections of the Bible to really pull anything out of as a reader today. But if by keeping that in mind, a little like a pro tip, by keeping in mind about what's happening in Israel, it kind of connects you to why they would even care to have that then. And we'll talk a little bit more about how it connects to us today. The third messy bit, after we talk about when it was written and why, is how does it connect to First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings? Because like we said, it is a lot shorter. And so I'll ask you guys questions. Now that we've talked about why it was written, why do you think it left out Solomon, Bathsheba, the Northern Kings, Elijah, Elisha? Why do you think they left out all those people and when they did the remake in First St. Chronicles? Yeah. Yeah. No, he wasn't there. And that's the main one for the Northern Kings. Because they weren't Davidic kings anyways. And God wasn't in the north anyways. And so it's like, why well, talk about how God was moving when he wasn't, you know, up there in the northern kingdom? And then, like you said, you know, not to beat them down. You know, Saul was a horrible mistake for Israel. And the point was not to point out their mistakes again. 
or at least not to capitalize on them. It was to they come up. And so they don't really talk about all of Saul's problems. They just bring up his debt. It's like the very beginning of the actual narrative is Saul dying. So. One other thing to keep in mind is, you know, some people, it's all, I know I've been calling it a remake. And that's It's almost a bad analogy because it's not like they're rewriting history. They're just summarizing and taking the parts that were hopeful. These guys, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Samuel, they were already written before this. When you read the Chronicles, it'll tell you, hey, like I said, hey, if you want to read more about this story, go to these resources. So these, the, whoever wrote this, they're writing with the assumption that at least they could back then go and read more if they wanted to. So the point was not to be comprehensive because that's what other records are for. And when we remember that, it kind of explains why they did leave a lot out. Because they weren't trying to be comprehensive. They were trying to be encouraging. That was the point. So, that's about when it was written, why, the difference between that and the other books. The fourth Bessie bit was the genealogies, which we've already talked about. And then the final one is how does this connect today? What are ways that First Saint Chronicles, First Saint Kings connects for us today? Uh, before we talk about some of these ways that it's uh, highlights and the themes and the theology that it points to, again, now that y'all kind of know where the chronicle is coming from, we've already talked about it a little bit. Um, what do you think are going to be themes that this book is going to highlight? Even if you haven't read it, just kind of guess. You know what what kind of themes do you think that this book is going to highlight for us? We mentioned the rebuilding of the temple. Mm -hmm. God's love and his patience. Yeah. The importance of the temple. Well, one of the things that's going to highlight, and we'll actually talk about, we'll do the temple first. I'll stand down. It is the temple and the importance of the temple for the Jewish people. Because just like today for Jewish people, the only way that they could have their sins forgiven is if somebody who was a um, Aaron descendant sacrificed animals on a properly built altar in the temple which is why the Jews are so upset right now, because there's not a properly built altar in Jerusalem right now. So there's no way for them to do their sacrifices. That was the way it was for them back then. They couldn't do their sacrifices, so their sins couldn't be forgiven. And so the concept of needing sins forgiven, needing a means to have themselves purified of their mistakes is important. And the temple becomes the physical symbol of what that means. And so that's, and they're rebuilding it during this time. And so the way the temple was treated in the past, because it's important for how they should treat it for them then. So you get 2 Chronicles 6, 36 through 40. Um, who wants to read that? Now I'll make one comment. Who wants that? 2 Chronicles 6, 36 through 40. Did you say Sammy? So as you read this, of course, it's giving 
true history of what Solomon said, but the guy included it because he's almost trying to double speak what Solomon is speaking to the original people and also what he's trying to tell the Jews, you know, several hundred years later. And so now you can, if you think about it being the double audience, you can read that in 2 Chronicles 6, 30, 60, 40. Yeah. Uh, when they sin against you, they're doing what they want to So if you try to put yourself into the mind of a 6th century Jew, hearing those words of Solomon talking about the temple, you can feel why for them the temple was so vital. I mean, could you see why it's so vital to them? Now, for us, we don't have a temple we go to. You know, we don't, there's, we don't emphasize the Jewish temple like that or sacrifices because what we find is that... God had a plan for a better temple. And what was that? Who's the better temple? Inside us. The better temple's inside us. And Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice for that. And so you get, so I get John 2, 18 through 22. John 2, 18 through 22. What's that? <laughs> John 2, 18 through 22. The Jews then responded to him, What sign do you show to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Just destroy this temple, and I'll raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he said. Then they believed the scriptures and the words that he had spoken. Yeah. So God's temple lives in us because Jesus is God's temple. And so when you read passages in First Second Chronicles and it talks about the importance of the temple, the passages like Sammy read, read where it's like people praying to the temple. We realize that God ultimately, that temple was a place marker that points us to Jesus. And he's the one, he's the temple that sacrificed for us. And all those things that passages are talking about are true for us now in Jesus. And so the temple is extremely important, especially for pointing us to the real solution for sin. You know, we don't have to be like the Jews wailing at the wailing wall anymore. Because we know the solution for sin is not a, a lamb sacrificed on an altar in a physical temple. That, that sacrifice happened 2,000 years ago on the cross. And so that's why it points to us. Another interesting element that it has is the 
importance of appropriate worship to God. The Jewish people in all of their history were horrible about thinking that they could just do the rituals and God would be happy with them. And repeatedly in the prophets, God says, look, it's not about just doing the rituals. God wants people's hearts. And so when they start building this temple again, there's a fear from these prophets and people that that's going to come back, that they're just going to do the rituals again, and that they're going to think that's good enough. They're like, no, we don't want you to do the rituals. We want to remind them again that it's all about God wanting people's hearts. And so this theme of appropriate worship comes up again <laughs> in this passage. So you get passages like 2 Chronicles 30, 18 through 20. Who wants that? 2 Chronicles 30, 18 through 20. For a majority of the people, many of them from Ephraim, Manasseh, actually, Ishtar, Zebron had not cleansed themselves, yet they ate the Passover otherwise than as prescribed. For Hezekiah had prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord pardon everyone who sets his heart to seek God, the Lord. The God of his fathers, even though not according to the sanctuary rules of cleanliness, and the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. So in that passage, there's people who are eating the Passover technically illegally, but Hezekiah prays that God sees their heart and kind of bypasses the law in order to see what they really have. And so this theme of that, this heart that matters is important, and it's still true today. I mean, we're Baptists because we believe in, in believers' baptism by immersion, but it's a lot of times we can get the same way where it's like, you know, you do the Lord's Supper, you come to church, you get baptized, and God's happy with us. And we need that still same lesson today that it's not about the rituals of Sunday or the rituals of the ordinances. It's about God actually wanting your heart. And that call is just as prevalent for us as Baptists today as it was for the Israelites back then. And First St. Chronicles teaches us about that. Finally, First um, Saint Chronicles emphasizes the importance of there being a king from David who's going to rule God's people and the centrality of that king. So let's read First Chronicles 29, 22 through 25. First Chronicles 29, 22 through 25. Who wants that? First Chronicles 29, 22 through 25. Jesus, the priests point to Jesus, and the kings point us to Jesus. Because 
eventually the kings fail Israel. I mean, they, even though First Saint Chronicles is trying to be real positive, it can't get over the fact that the kings still were not very good, and they eventually got sent to exile. And they even the chronicle can't hide that fact. And so the the goodness of the kings, like Solomon in that passage, as well as the failures, all point to the king we really need, which is Jesus. And then kind of a bonus lesson, because it's not a huge emphasis here, but if you remember that it's about spurring God's people to action, getting people out of their hopelessness, out of their apathy, wanting to get back into the battle to fight the opposition for God's kingdom. It does that in this book, too. It's almost like a call to get back into the work. And that's why the ending of the book is so powerful. Because he says, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom. And he also put it in writing, saying, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judea. Whoever is there among you, of all his people, may the Lord his God be with them, and let him go up. The last words in the book is, may the Lord God be with his people, and let them go up. And so as you read this book, you can think of it as a call to get back into the game. And to get into action for God, because he, that's the way he's acted in the past. Any questions about or comments about First Saint Chronicles? <laughs> yeah. It's a call. It's a, the call for us is still to do God's work. You know, to look at the way God moved in the past, remember how He's been faithful with God's people, and to do it now. You know, the call to faithful worship is still for us. The call to go to the temple to pray and to trust is still there for us. Our temple is just different. It's Jesus. The call to believe and trust in the king and obey the king is still there for us. Our king is just different. It's Jesus. So all these things are the same. It's just instead of us building a literal temple in Jerusalem, we're following Jesus and trying to seek to build his kingdom, whether you're at school or at work or in your neighborhood or with your friends or your family. That is the kingdom you're in the walls you're trying to build today. Right. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for allowing us to be here today, Lord. And we're so thankful that you uh, have given us books in the Bible, um, even books like First Second Samuel, First Second Kings, that remind us of the importance of following you. But then, Lord, you also give us books like First Second Chronicles that just show us the hope and um, your sovereignty and the fact that you're with your people. But we're so thankful that we don't have to rely on a human king or leader. That we don't have to rely on our physical location being built. But Lord, we know that we are trusted solid because uh, when you died on the cross, you said it was finished. And we're so glad we can trust in you. And Lord, I pray that we would be people who 
uh, do the call of this passage that we would go up and we would build your kingdom, Lord, in whatever place that we have. And Lord, we would be workers for you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.